Good morning. To those of you who are here, good morning. And to those of you who are out there, good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life. And thanks always to John and Olivia and William and Tim for making this uh, all happen. I've got a couple of other announcements to make. Um, some of you uh, know Mary Gay Beiser, Roy Beiser. Uh, Roy has been in trouble with Alzheimer's for a while. He died a couple of days ago. So one of the reasons Mary Gay is here every Sunday, the first thing I come in organizing our name tags. So she said that she wouldn't be here today, but we'll be back. There's no details on when uh, Roy's service will be. Some of you may remember Wayne Day. Remember Wayne? Wayne died Tuesday two weeks ago, and I will be doing his the first of two services in Marble Falls this Friday. So let you know that. I have been uh, coming to St. Paul's for over 30 years, I think. And today, for the first time, I noticed that we had candles in the back lit. And I thought, that's unusual. We don't usually have candles that you can light, you know, in the back. And then I walked over to one of the tables and uh, picked up this. And so uh, in lieu of what we usually do for our silent time, let's do enter a period of silence. But I want to read to you something. Um, so take a deep breath and let's be here. with our intention to know that we are held in the sacred heart of God and that sacred mystery seeks to live in us. I want to read to you this prayer that was written by uh, Kayla Craig. O God of peace, our hearts are heavy and our brains can barely keep up with the breaking news. We don't know what to say or what to do in a world so wounded. So we come to you with hearts heavy for all who sit in the crossfires of violence and acts of war. O God of peace, be with the people of Ukraine, with the mothers who carry babies to subway shelters, with the fathers who hold their heads in their hands, with the children who absorb the traumas, of violent acts of powerful men. O oh God of peace, we don't know the words to pray for a warring world and all who are vulnerable in it. We don't pretend to know the extent of the damages or what tomorrow or today will bring, but we know that you are a God of peace and we can't bomb our way to shalom. O God of peace, comfort the crying and heal the hurt. Tend the aching and soothe the fearful. Make us instruments of your peace, creating a sacred symphony where rhythms of grace are danced upon and evil has lost its sting now and forevermore. O God of peace, hear our prayer. 
So this prayer for Ukraine, you can pick up at the back of the sanctuary if you would like um, to have one. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So one of the goals <clears throat> that I would have for these times that we spend together is uh, for any teaching that I offer here or anywhere else, is that that teaching be simple. And I don't mean simplistic, but I do mean understandable. However, in order to get to the point of simplicity, we very frequently have to pass first through some concepts that are initially difficult to grasp. And at the same time, we have to take into consideration staying ever mindful of our own situation in life. Uh, in the seminary, my best biblical teachers stress the importance of what they call the Sitzen Laban. That is to say, studying any text from, the, from any religious tradition, studying it in the context it was written and the function that it had for that time. I think one of the greatest tragedies that is dealt to biblical text and to people is to think that the biblical writers were writing with us in mind. And we have to be constantly aware of our own context. Uh, our, our country, as the prayer I read, shows that we are going through some perilous times. Not only are we divided as a country, but we're divided as a country about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, so before I'm done here today, my intention is to offer some solace and some guidance that will be useful for us in the days ahead. Um, now, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, um, but um, I grew up in a time where um, I heard all the slogans of the Protestant worth ethic, you know what they are. Keep your eye on the ball, put your shoulder to the wheel, keep your nose to the grindstone, keep your ear to the ground. I'm not sure if you did all of those at once, <laughs> you would ever get anything done. There's a lot to pay attention to. So we've gotten to the point in going through the Gospel of John our deep dive, where we encounter one of the really long speeches that Jesus gives. I call them speeches. In the other Gospels, Jesus tells parables, but not in John. In John, parables are told about Jesus. Um, some are in the form of miracles. Some are told about Jesus. And these miracle stories are called the Book of Signs. And there are seven uh, such book of signs in the Gospel of John, and we have dealt with five of them. We have dealt with turning water into wine. This is a parable that says if you're going to understand what's about to come toward you, you need to be ready to have your mind altered as if you had drunk a big glass of wine. This is enthusiastic and enthused stuff. The next uh, sign was the healing of the uh, royal official son. 
which begins to show how Jesus, this is followed, you remember, by the visit with a Samaritan woman by the well. Jesus is crossing boundaries. He's crossing barriers. And that's the purpose of this particular sign. There's the healing, healing of the paralyzed man by the pool, which um, shows something about having initiative. It gives us a real new opportunity to understand what faith means and also something of Jesus' understanding of God. Then there were two sign stories that really go back to back. The feeding of the 5,000, God's providential care. This is a, a setup for the crucifixion story that will come in John. And the calming of the sea, which I'll refer to again a little bit later today. Now we got two sign stories to go. Uh, one is the healing of the blind man. And uh, the other is, and, and this is hard for some people to get their minds around. I said, it's hard to get your mind around some of this. But the other is the raising of Lazarus. And uh, this is a parable, and most scholars do not take it as a historical fact, but as a parable. That's hard for some people. But before we get to those two, the healing of the blind man and the raising of Lazarus, uh, Jesus gives a speech. And the speech is in the form of an argumentative dialogue between Jesus, some of his disciples, and people who started to follow him because he fed them food. So in the speech in John, we're going to encounter two things that also will take some effort to get our minds around. One of these is where um, Jesus is described as the bread of heaven come down for people. This is like manna in the Moses story. And the feeding of the 5,000 is somewhat built on that story. And Jesus calls himself the bread of life. The other thing that we're going to encounter in this first long speech, and it's going to keep coming again and again and again and again in John, are the beginning of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven I am statements in John. Um, and the, the one that we will deal with when we do uh, this again next week, Amy Jill Levine is going to be here uh, speaking uh, but the week after that, we'll get into the bread story. I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheepfold. That is, the only way to get into God is through me. That's what John is saying. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. And then the one in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the last one is, I am the true vine. So I have decided to deal with the I am statement first because it's one of the two things that I get confronted with when people first hear almost any of my rethinking of any part of the Christian story in light of what we are learning from evolutionary cosmology. So when I first began venturing in the territory of challenging Christian fundamentalism, and I hope you know that Christian fundamentalism is an oxymoron, because um, in my humble opinion, there's nothing Christian about fundamentalism. But in my encounter with 
fundamentalist or very, very, very conservative people when I would start talking about rethinking theology in light of cosmology, um, I'd get these questions. You know what an oxymoron is, right? An oxymoron is a, is a two-word combination. Uh, the word oxy comes from the Latin word meaning sharp. And uh, moron comes from the a uh, Latin word which accurately means uh, foolish. So you've got sharp and foolish together. Um, and, and I went through a phase in my life where I collected oxymorons. Uh, jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron. A religious war, all right? Bittersweet, a small crowd, old news, an open secret, the living dead, a deafening silence. This is the only choice you have. Something can be pretty ugly, or something can be awfully good. And I remember when I took these to Sherry, uh, I co started collecting them, and I went and I read them to Sherry, and I finished, and she said, or smart ass. <laughs> Not a kind thing to say. I first heard Marcus Borg say that there are people who believe all the right things, and they're still jerks. So the Christian fundamentalists I have encountered are some of the meanest, or most mean-spirited people I've ever encountered. Saying that you believe in Jesus as a way of life and not living compassionately is an oxymoron. If you're there's something wrong with your religion if it makes you unkind, intolerant, racist, or selfish. Yep. Hallelujah. So anyway, when I started speaking out against fundamentalism, I would get two questions over and over. Now, I want you to keep in mind, I had not yet encountered Ilya Delio or Michael Moorwood or Judy Kanata. Now, I know you know about um, Ilya Delio and Michael Moorwood because they've both been here. And you can go back in the archives and you can watch Ilya, you can watch Michael do a presentation here. It's all on the Ordinary Life YouTube channel, so you can see that. And I just encountered uh, last year uh, Judy Kanata, uh, the book I read last year. This is hands down the best religious spiritual book I read all year last year, I think. There were several others that were close, but I love this. So much that I wanted to get her to come here, but she uh, died of a very uh, rare cancer um, a couple of years ago, so hard to get her to come here. Her Field of Compassion is a wonderful book, and although um, I didn't really, I'm not really, I've finished this now, I didn't really learn anything new, I love reading her, her book uh, that was actually written before Field of Compassion. Um, it's a book called Radical Amazement, Contemplative Lessons from Black Holes, Supernovas, and Other Wonders of the Universe. It's a good book. And you'll, you'll, all three of these people 
Ilya, Michael, and Judy are Roman Catholics. And she brings her Roman Catholicism directly into the pages of her writing with uh, spiritual contemplations and prayers at the end of every chapter. So um, it's just wonderful. And Morwood is the guy who said, because of evolutionary cosmology, we have to rethink everything in our theological categories. So um, when people get it, that there is no God out there and that we are in an evolving, expanding, creative, entangled mass of energy, there are two questions that come up over and over and over again. You will not be surprised about what they are. The first one is, what about prayer? If there's no God out there that we can pray to to miraculously intervene in our set of circumstances, what good is prayer? And we can talk about that sometime if you want to. I'm open to, to doing that. The other question is, if humans are really just a tiny, tiny speck on the time-space continuum, what about Jesus? What about in the Bible where it says Jesus is the only way? So we're going to put prayer aside for the time being, and, and we're going to deal with this question. Do you think Jesus is the only way? Now, when I'm asked this question, it is a test. And the effort is to see if I give the right answer. And if I don't give the right answer, the door's shut, right? And because there's such a growing number of people who are non-religious, by that I mean they are tired of the shenanigans of organized religion, these people ask the question hoping I will say no, so that maybe then we will have something in common. So when I am being what my beautiful bride calls a smartass, my response when people ask, is Jesus the only way, is to say the only way to what? Now, if you want a way toward enlightenment, I would recommend the teachings of Buddhism. Starting with the Four Noble Truths that lead you to the Eightfold Path. Holly and I spent three months talking about um, the lessons that both of us had learned from Buddhism in here. Uh, you, and again, you can go back to the archives and you can see or read or listen to these lessons there. there. Um, if you want a way um, to practice submission to God, to the unknowable mystery, try Islam. The word Islam means submission. And if we all embrace the five pillars of Islam and practice them, the world would be a better place. We would pray five times a day. We would gladly give to the poor. We would practice fasting. And we would not consume alcohol. Um, if you want to learn about mysticism, I'd refer you to the branch of Islam known as Sufism and its lyrical poets of Kabir and Sufi. Or any of the mystics that you can read about in a book that my spiritual director recommended to me years ago called Love Poems from God. A wonderful book filled with things. If you want to learn about how God is in everything and everyone, I would refer you to Hinduism. 
Judy Canada uh, tells the story in her most recent, in the most recent book I read, of a group of children from mixed ethnic backgrounds who were interrupted in their play and asked the question, where is God? And the Roman and Catholic children pointed up, and the Hindu children pointed in. If you want to learn how to be wealthy without work and healthy without diet or exercise, there are some megachurch preachers out there who say they can deliver. If you follow them, and follow here means give them money. If you want to dominate others through intimidation, terrorism, or military conquest, Jesus is not for you. Even if you are looking for a way to get to heaven when you die, Jesus is not your guy. He didn't teach that. Now, some people taught that about him, but check the record. Jesus never said, believe in me, and if you do, you go to heaven when you die. It's not there. So you have to keep constantly in mind that all of these I am statements in the Gospel of John were created by followers of Jesus, not by Jesus himself. It was their experience. It was valid to them. And we'll get to, in, into talking about that more. Uh, as we go through John, you're going to hear Jesus, you're going to hear coming from the mouth of Jesus in John 14th chapter, which is where the big I am statements are. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's there in John. Let's see what it means. Now, this verse is used by some to say that if you do not consciously and decisively accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you will burn forever in hell. My belief is that Jesus did not teach, nor was he interested in showing a way out of hell for some folks after death. Jesus' message was primarily about a way to live a better life before death. A life that was marked by love and compassion, non-judgment, and inclusivity. His message was not about constricting and excluding, but about welcoming all into what he called the community of empowerment. I think the question we need to focus on is what did whoever wrote this portion of John have in mind and want those who heard his words to hear and understand. Now, you can twist Scripture to say anything you want it to say. Right now, the Methodist Church is splitting over the fact that some people are convinced that the Bible teaches that only heterosexuals can run the show. And the Bible has been used to support slavery, racism, mistreatment of women, justification of war, hunting and burning women accused of being witches, torture of heretics, fights over evolution, and lest we forget, accurate predictions about the end of the world. None of which has ever proven accurate. Uh, Andy Fuller, who uh, is a distant attendee of these classes, sent me this week this, <clears throat> I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> 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 
Well, it is a fact that some people take passages in the scripture and twist them to their own purposes. You would think the way some people interpret it, that Jesus said, quote, you should be very troubled because if you believe in God but not me, you will be shut out of heaven where there are a few small rooms for the few who get it right. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, what about people who've never even heard of you? Will they go to heaven when they die? And Jesus said to him, I am the only way to heaven, and the truth about me is the only truth that will get you into life after death. Not one person will go to heaven unless they personally understand and believe a clearly defined message about me and personally and consciously ask me to come into their hearts. I cannot, in my wildest imagination, believe that Jesus ever thought or said anything close to that. Certainly that rendition would have made no sense to Jesus' followers or to those for whom the Gospel of John was written. And we'll get into this more as we get toward the end of John. What I want to point out now is that the context of the greatest I am statements that Jesus says is let me give you a new command, love one another. In the same way I love you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for one another. Now, because Jesus was a Jewish mystic, and because in Judaism there was no well-defined understanding of an afterlife, certainly not a concept of individual soul immortality, that's Greek philosophy. It comes way after, way after both the Hebrew scriptures and the writings in John were conceived, okay? When Jesus is said to refer things like my father's house, in my father's house are many mansions. What the scholars say, what Jesus meant, was what he's been talking about all of his ministry, which is the rule of God, the empire of God, the domain of God, something that is started here but finished later. It's here. Come into this place. He's saying, especially as the drama unfolds and he's going to his execution, which is what the Gospel of John is about. It's taking us right up to the execution and the new life of resurrection. What Jesus is saying is, stay calm, don't be afraid, don't go looking elsewhere for magic solutions. All you need is to be found in the teachings I have already offered you and the life that we have shared up until this moment. Just stay with it. So go back to the sign story of Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. You remember that? We dealt with that. And in that story, Jesus says to his disciples, where's your faith? Don't be scared. Now, <clears throat> what Jesus is not saying is that if you have th faith, things will ca calm down. And you're going to come out of this unscathed. That's not what he's saying. Regardless of how stormy it is, was or how life-threatening Jesus was always inviting his followers to see where God was in this moment 
Where is your faith now that we are in this storm? Not if you have big enough faith, the storm is going to go away. One of the messages of God's gospel is God who is love is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. Now we will get to that at the end of John. But the message here in this story is that nothing can separate us from this love. Not a pandemic, not war, not even death. This love may, separate, may not separate us from the storm, but no storm can separate us from this love. Get the difference? So Jesus is saying to his followers, and I believe he's saying to us, all you need is right here. Don't have to go somewhere else. Don't have to die to go to heaven. This is it. If you are wondering who you're going to spend eternity with, just look around. If you want to know what God looks like, Jesus said, look at me. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? What do you see when you look at Jesus' life, at his character, at his deeds, his teaching, his way? Do you see exclusion? Do you see rejection? You see constriction? You see elitism? You see favoritism? You see condemnation? Absolutely not. You see non judgment, love, inclusion. I love Sarah Grant's way of putting this. I've used this, Holly and I have used this a lot where Sarah Grant says, it isn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it is the way. I'm sorry, let me put that back up there. This isn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it's the way. Jesus' way was one of compassion and healing and acceptance and forgiveness and inclusion and love from beginning to end. So we saw him early on, welcome a Samaritan woman. We saw him welcome and heal a Roman son. As a matter of fact, Jesus says about this non-Jewish person, this is the greatest example of faith that I've seen. And we'll see him in a few weeks champion a prostitute, tax collectors, and in his dying breath, a thief. Time and time again, even unto this present moment, People want a roadmap. They want something for sure they can hang on to with or without Jesus. And Jesus always turns that down. He says, I'm with you, that's enough. So what he offers is presence. And what he offers, what he encourages us is trust. He says, love is enough, that's all you need. And again, when we get several further chapters in John, we'll return to this. John 14 is just full of this kind of material. And it is not material that if you don't read it in context and understand it as a Jewish mystical document, you will misread it. So, is Jesus the only way? Well, it depends on where you're trying to go. 
If we want to abandon earth and its care and evacuate to heaven as soon as possible, he's not the way. Because if we do that, we're going in a, in a direction that Jesus didn't teach. If we want to ignore the growing expressions of racism in our culture and try to rewrite history from a white-only colonial point of view, Jesus ain't our guy. There are so many ways our culture is sure is the, the way, even our religious institutions, that Jesus wouldn't recognize. A little over four years ago in here, um, I introduced a new theme called Living Between the No Longer and the Not Yet. And I was influenced by Michael Morewood and um, evolutionary cosmology. It's a new game. We've got to learn a new game. And I'm, I'm not taking that off the table. We haven't emphasized it as much lately, the last couple of years. But what I would put on the table as another phrase is that we are living in an apocalyptic time. And this is something that Holly began to talk about early on in the pandemic. Apocalyptic means an unveiling, something that we're seeing that maybe we haven't seen as clearly until now. And apocalyptic is another one of those words that some religious people have used to scare other people into some kind of fearful and, again, exclusive behavior. But what we are in the midst of is a time when what is being revealed is the way things are. I have heard a very wise spiritual teacher say that the essence of and for spiritual practice is developing the capacity to be with what is. And to be with what is, developing the resources to be with what is without being judgmental. Smart-ass guy. <laughs> Systems of evil have become much more brazen and overt in the last couple of years. I know that old line that um, I think I first heard in an AA meeting years ago where somebody said, Normal is just a setting on the clothes dryer. Our, however, I know that, uh, but our sense of what was normal is gone, appended. And in this context, if we listen to the teachings of Jesus, we're invited to go deeper into a trusting love. Now, I hear the words over and over and over again that um, I've heard Jim Finley begin almost all sessions of meditation that I've heard him do when he says, just be here, be present, be open, be awake, neither clinging nor rejecting anything. Just be here in the moment. Now, a good thing about living in a time of unveiling is that we have the opportunity to stop taking a whole lot of things for granted. We are offered in this time an invitation to enter a greater depth of love and compassion. The myths of modernism are dying all around us. 
For decades, if not longer, we have lived with a belief that progress, human reason, and higher technology is going to give us peace and prosperity. You've been watching television the last week? Look at what's going on in Ukraine. Or look at the higher gun deaths that we are experiencing. Not decrease, but increasing. Look at the suicide rates increasing, addiction rates increasing, attempts to limit voting rights increasing, and of course the war in Ukraine. So we see that our faith in continual progress has been misplaced. More information has not led to more wisdom. More options are not the same as freedom. More things don't bring more happiness. And further, all the time saved by our time-saving appliances and devices, we're not using it for contemplation and meditation. We're just being busier. So it is clear that what we call progress has been achieved at not only the expense of the earth, but also the curtailment of human rights. Um, three weeks ago, not a uh, block and a half from where we are right now. You remember the real cold weather we had? Block and a half, a homeless man froze to death just right out here. And this is in the same world where people are paying up to a half million dollars for a few minutes ride on one of Jeff Bezos' rockets. Something's gone askew. So what do we need in these turbulent times? Now, if you listen to Jesus and John, the answer is that we need more love and trust in, trust in this love. But you know, I'm not one to argue with Jesus, but I think we need something before that. We need something that will lead us to that. And I think what that is is wisdom. I look at what's going on in the world and our national politics and the decisions and behaviors of the church, and what I see is a lack of wisdom. So often what the church has done is to teach people to think that they're right and other people are wrong. We haven't helped people enter the narrow and dangerous path of true wisdom. People don't like to hear about narrow and dangerous, but it is parallel with his teaching. Enter by the narrow gate, straight as the way, hard as the path. So the message of Jesus, if we can stomach it, offers to liberate us from both the lies of this world and the lies that are lodged in ourselves. The teachings of Jesus seek to create an alternative consciousness, solid ground on which we can really stand free from every social order, from every ideology, and Jesus called this the domain of God, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the empowered, empowered community. Whatever word you want to use, it was an alternate way of thinking and living. And this is where faith comes in. So we offer our bit of salt, our bit of light. 
It means a willingness to stand where we grow comfortable knowing that we do not know much at all. And that's okay. The message of Jesus in John, now I want you to hear these two sentences correctly and accurately. The message of Jesus in John doesn't have anything to do with religion. The message of John does have to do with religion. But it's the Jewish religion, not the Methodist church. Okay? That's a very different reality. When we get to talking about the bread Jesus claims to be, we're going to talk more about what that Jewish religion meant for those people who wrote the Gospel of John. So one of the things Jesus seeks to do is to break down barriers between people, which starts by breaking down barriers inside of us. He seeks to set people free from bondage, the bondage of self-centeredness, the bondage of being motivated by survival, the bondage of insecurity, the bondage of fear, the bondage of the struggle to become somebody, the bondage of assuming that in order to build ourselves up, we've got to tear somebody else down. So the Jews who heard this, now remember John was written for a new Jewish, a new expression of Judaism that was coming out of an older expression of Judaism. And the older expression of Judaism said, hey, we don't need this. We have Abraham for our father. Remember that? We're on the right side. We're in the right camp. And Jesus responds, I'm my translation, but you haven't done what Abraham did. You know what Abraham did, right? It is the greatest expression of faith in the whole Jewish story. He left home. He got up and left home not knowing where he was going. And that's used as an expression of faith. Jesus said, you haven't left home to venture into the world of the unknown to become all you could be. You have to walk beyond the certainty of religion in order to enter the insecurity of expanding faith in a frightening world. And, and this is what I think is most relevant for you and me right now. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm part of the life of God. I am part of the love of God. I am part of the being of God. This God cannot be bound in time or space by ethnicity or clan, by religion or, relig or ritual. God is beyond every human div division. I am part of this God, and so are you. One of the tremendous values I find in evolutionary cosmology is that it nudges me in the direction of more completely embracing this teaching. Evolutionary cosmology, which is just another way, of, another way of being open to seeing what really is, tears away the veil of triviality and, and reveals the significance and magnificence that is at the heart of everything. And this is what Jesus kept saying over and over again. Open your eyes. Look at this. 
Look at the daisies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. Why in the world are you so scared? Later on in John, Jesus is going to give another speech, a long one, in which he talks to his disciples about unity. And he says, uh, it's formed as a prayer, and he says in this speech, um, may they all be of one heart and mind. Now, evolutionary cosmology says we already are, we just don't know it. We're all part of each other. And what we don't have the wisdom to do is to live this reality. And one way is, and I think Jesus did this, is to embrace this God of radical mystery. A God who continues to give expression from within creation all the time. One who emerges as new life in every nook and cranny of creation. Jesus shows us the way to do this. And in this reason and for this means, I'm willing to say, yes, Jesus is the way. Not the way to get to heaven when you die. Jesus is just the way to be. He's the way to live our lives right here, right now. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and please come back next week to hear Amy Jill Levine, a biblical scholar, is going to be right here in the space. Thank you. Peace. <clears throat>